Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Test Tubes and Cauldrons, a podcast where we talk about the science and the spiritual. I forget how I usually do this. No, oh, my God, Astro. <laughs> it's where we talk about, about the the science behind spirituality. Thank Thanks for making Oh, my goodness. <laughs> All right, you guys get to see the chaos. I'm not going to redo that, so have fun. I'm Astra. I'm Phil. And I'm Honey. And today we're actually going back to a series that we started a long time ago called Occultists and Scientists, and we're going to be talking about Dr. John Dee. But before we get into that, <clears throat> let's go ahead and do our What Happened on This Day. So we're recording this on February 18th in 2023. And on this day, there was the birth of Nasir Adin Al-Tusi, who is a Persian philosopher, scientist, and mathematician, um, and astronomer, who made outstanding contributions to very early science. When the Mongol invasion started by Genghis Khan reached him in 1256, he escaped death by joining the victorious Mongols as a scientific advisor. He used an observatory built in Maragia, I hope I pronounced that correctly, finished in 1262, assisted by Chinese astronomers. It had various instruments, such as a four-meter wall quadrant made from copper and an azimuth quadrant, which was Tusi's own invention. Using accurately plotted planetary movements, he modified Ptolemy's model of the planetary system based on mechanical principles. The observatory and its library became a center for a wide range of work in science, mathematics, and philosophies moving forward. I love learning about Persian philosophers. Like, honestly, they do some cool shit, and it's, I wish that we were as cool as them, but we're not. (laughs) We should do um, an Islamic Golden Age episode sometime, because I feel like a lot of alchemy and science came out of there. So, like I said earlier, we are talking about Dr. John Dee. If you aren't familiar with him, he was a true Renaissance man and the master of many different disciplines. As a physician, engineer, theologian, astronomer, and cartographer, he also invented nautical instruments and developed advanced navigational charts that allowed Britain to lead successful expeditions, if you can call colonialism a successful expedition, throughout the world. With such a wide understanding of the world and its many languages and activities, John Dee was pulled into Queen Elizabeth's service, and he was actually so well-renowned that he was even allowed to choose the date of her coronation using astronomy and astrology. And while I don't know this next bit to be particularly true, some do believe that Elizabeth enlisted his services as a spy as well, but he is known for being one of her tutors and advisors at the very least. Outside of his scientific accomplishments, John Dee is also known for developing the system of Enochian magic, which is a ceremonial form of angel magic with his squire, Dr. Edward not doctor, just Edward Kelly. <laughs> so I think we're going to first go through the life. Oh, actually. Before that, have ed- either of you heard about John Dee like before you met me and I started talking your ear off about ceremonial magic? Yes, I was actually obsessed with John Dee in college. I read a lot of books on him and I actually wrote a weird kind of surrealist film for people who don't know. I, I went to school to do like weird artsy film stuff and I made an or I wrote a, a weird surrealist film about John Dee and the Philosopher's Stone. It involved like demons and Enochian and Edward Kelly. I find the relationship between John Dee and Edward Kelly especially fascinating, but 
we can get in that later. But yes, I have heard of John. Wow, that's awesome. Um, I'm actually quite embarrassed because before this episode, I kind of knew the name and I knew that he was kind of the astrologer dude, the Enochian dude. Didn't really know anything else about him. We've actually been meaning to record this episode for quite a while. I looked at the last draft. It was from April 2022. <laughs> but I actually had a really good uh, good time researching this and learning more about the historical context that he was um, sort of embroiled in because... That's probably something as English history I should know more about, actually. When you enter the ceremonial magic sphere and you listen to us talk about angel magic, Enochian and the names John Dee and Edward Kelly can come up very quickly. It's a system of magic that has some varying support, actually, within kind of the greater occult circles. Some claiming it's dangerous and that those who practice it go crazy, while others having practiced it quite successfully, such as someone named Adley Nichols. And those kind of conversations were my first introduction to the system, which I then began to read books about. Specifically, the main kind of Enochian experts, I would argue, um, at least regarding the magical aspects of it, are Lon Milo Duquette and then Aaron Leach. So it was really through through that. And I was always, I was kind of just curious about the claims that people who practice Enochian went crazy. Surprisingly, though, and I think we'll get into this a little bit later, a lot of those claims come from people who practice the Golden Dawn style of Enochian, which is different than actual Enochian that's transcribed within Dee and Kelly's diaries. So I think we're going to talk about next the historical and cultural background that John Dee operated under. Fella, this is like your place to shine. John Dee was born in 1527 at the very beginning of the early modern period in England. So, I mean, there's um, a lot of people when they think of Elizabethan, the Elizabethan era, they think of that as Renaissance England. They think of Shakespeare as being Renaissance England. That is not the case at all. The Elizabethan period is a very, 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 very distinct time in English history, most notably because of Queen Elizabeth and her religious kerfuffles that were going on at the time that dramatically altered not just the sort of political and religious landscape of England, but also altered the arts in many ways. Um, Previously, before Queen Elizabeth, we don't really have, like, it was kind of forbidden to write down secular songs or songs that were in English. So most, I mean, that's like, obviously some of those songs did survive, but it wasn't allowed to be funded by the crown. But with Queen Elizabeth, she loved music a lot. So a lot of our music, a lot of our English music survives from that time period because she was like, I'm sick of Catholic songs. Let's have songs that are secular instead. That period is very, very, very different. And it was also, you know, Queen Elizabeth the first. Um, there's like a lot that we can unpack there. But it does make sense in many ways, her relationship with John Dee. Some saw it as, you know, she really, you know, being the quote unquote virgin queen, it was a way to kind of make sure she maintained her power. Hence some of the rumors that he was a spy. Some thought that he would like curse or hex people to use those terms. But anyway, so Back to John Dee himself. So he is allegedly descended from Welsh royalty. He was able to have an education at an early age, something that not everyone was afforded. And this was specifically something that was afforded to generally wealthy boys. Passion for learning was now established, and he attended Cambridge University at just 15. Good for him. (laughs) Where he studied a mixture of philosophy, mathematics, Greek, Latin, geometry and astrology so he was uh, supposedly pretty much obsessive on these subjects there's a quote he was so eager to learn he later recalled so vehemently bent to study that he worked 18 hours a day allowing just four hours for sleep and two for meals mathematics was his passion 
I think Henny here has wrote uh, has written a PhD life. <laughs> I was going to bring that up because it's so funny. It's so accurate. <laughs> his intense dedication to mathematics is doubly impressive in the context of his time. Although university curriculums ostensibly contained arithmetic mathematics in 1500s in England was in its infancy. That basically means that D was largely self-taught. So it would become his legacy and also his downfall. So why was he so obsessed with math or maths, if you're Henny? So early 1500s Europe was an interesting time for science, to say the least. Just two universities existed in England at the time, compared to five in Scotland, which I did not know. So wow, go Scotland. And their <laughs> teachings were far from secular, although some early rumblings of the scientific revolution would read their head. Science at the time was not distinct from religion as it is today. So John doesn't uh, John D doesn't differentiate between astronomy and astrology as is common to see back in that time period. So he related his studies to heavenly influences and operations actual in this elemental portion of the world. In other words, this was a means to an end for John D. Um, mathematics was a model through which he could better understand the world, entirely congruent with his strong Christian beliefs and at times directly relating to them. Yeah, so I was just curious kind of who that reminds us of, because I think this theme of mathematics being sort of the key to universal secrets is something that we've seen before in definitely in a lot of occultism. There's a theory that John Dee, because he spent a lot of time at university translating texts as um, was common at universities at the time, they would translate texts from the ancient world. And that's where a lot of the scientific discoveries were sort of re-uncovered. There's a theory that he might have encountered Neoplatonism and Pythagoreanism through these roots, and that might have influenced his sort of interest in mathematics. But I was curious whether you guys, maybe being a bit more familiar with John Dee, considered this to be accurate, considered him to be kind of a true Neoplatonist, or what, what, what do you think his main influences were? Because I saw quite a lot of variable scholarship on whether he really is Neoplatonic. John Dee's, like, his lifetime is sort of, it's such an interesting intersection between, like, the Renaissance period and the beginning of the scientific revolution. These kind of conflating worldviews, especially with Copernicus, just kind of bringing forth his heliocentric model not long after, I think, John Dee graduated from Cambridge, kind of threw everything on its head, which is, which was so interesting, especially when things previously, like, science and religion have been so integrated, and now they seem to be so separate, right? I do know that... John Dee was heavily influenced by the teachings of Ptolemy, and I also believe that was the same for some teachings of Plato as well. He was very well versed in philosophy, so I think many of the teachings from kind of the old Greek philosophers had a very big impact on his perception of the world. This idea, actually, that you can learn the world or learn more about kind of the heavens and, and the divine by studying the material world is a philosophy that I hold as well. But it's something that's also very evident in the works of Paracelsus, who has kind of that same notion, although a little bit more scientific in nature, and this idea that by studying the world, we will better understand the divine. I definitely think like that kind of ideology probably stems from some of the early philosophers like Plato, like Paracelsus, and can were certainly influenced and influenced upon John Dee in his studies. A pioneer at, in his field, John Dee found himself frustrated with England's academic culture, which in his mind prioritized grammar and rhetoric over the superior subjects of arithmetic, geometry, and astronomy. So after completing his master's at Cambridge, Dee departed for the continent in 1548, seeking like-minded academics with whom he could further his goals of learning more about the universe. It was here he met other uh, contemporary mathematicians, Mercator, Merc Mercator, I've never known how to pronounce Ramus and Frisius, to name a few. Quite quite exciting names there. And advanced his work on both astronomy and navigation. So here he would also encounter kindred spirit, spirit 
and Marsilio Ficino, a Catholic scholar, drama, who shared Dee's interest in mathematics and, astro- and astrology. Most notably, Ficino's learnings towards Neoplatonism led him to translate the Corpus Hermeticum, ding, 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 one of Hermeticism's foundational texts. This may have influenced Dee's occult practice, but we will see later on. It would be long, however, before he made his return to England, which is when he became notorious. It's actually interesting, too, because I know that Dr. John Dee also engaged with the works of Trithemius, who was a abbot at the time, I believe, and often said it to be kind of this like evil wizard, especially in the later Renaissance period, kind of right before the scientific revolution. And so that's part of why John Dee's reputation kind of fell at least a little bit with his kind of engagement with the black arts, for lack of a better term, because of Trithemius's downfall of reputation as well. So them collectively kind of at the same time engaging with each other is super interesting as well. I believe this idea of crystal scrying might have also been influenced by Trithemius. There's some scholarly evidence to suggest that being the case, but we don't know for sure. So that's also an interesting note. Okay, so why is John Dee frequently referred to as a scientist? What were his major contributions to the scientific era? Well, following his brief sojourn with Europe's academic elite and armed with a new collection of astronomical instruments, Dee returned to England in 1552. Here, he actually rejected a fellowship from the University of Oxford, citing his distaste for the English academic system and its deficiencies in mathematics. Instead, he elected to continue his mathematical endeavours in service to the royal court, where his expertise in navigation and astrology made him an attractive, if controversial, ally. It was here that he made some of his greatest contributions to science. Dee's academic career occurred during the early stages of the scientific revolution in Europe. After Copernicus shook the world in 1543 by presenting evidence for a heliocentric solar system, a large number of scientific developments followed, and the beginnings of empiricism began to take shape. Dee was part of the scientific revolution in several ways, partly by his own academic contributions. As we've mentioned, he made massive contributions to navigation, especially in services to the Muscovy Company, where he assisted piloting of explorers like Humphrey Gilbert, John Davis, and Walter Raleigh. He also worked on scientific instruments, probably with the collection of stuff he brought back from Europe. This includes things like the paradoxical compass, which seems like it might be a circumpolar chart for navigation in polar regions, or maybe a device for laying out a series of rum lines in a circular route. I couldn't really find much evidence of what this is, however, so take that with a, a grain of salt. He also observed a supernova called the New Star in 1572. And he published several volumes, particularly the, oh my god, I have to fucking pronounce this, don't I? <laughs> the the Propedematica Aphoristica, a volume containing mathematics, astrology, and magic. And more famously, he edited a translation of Euclid's Geometry, which has a very famous foreword in which he waxes lyrical about the divine virtue of maths. Dee also had a massive, massive scientific library, one of the biggest in Europe at the time. He translated texts from the ancient world, as we mentioned, and his library actually served for, as a hub for scholars. And finally, he was also interested in kind of empiricism himself. Some places look at his diaries and say that he shows an, a clear understanding of the experimental method. So he collects data by observation, he mathematically elaborates it, and he devises new experiments to test it. That sounds pretty similar to what we've described before, right? So he's um, a really interesting figure because he started to sort of develop and formalise science and mathematics when this wasn't really as much of a thing, shall we say. Phil, are you the one who wrote Archimedes? I don't even know what that is. Uh, I was not. I think it's Archmaestry. It was probably my uh, my Google. It's telling me that's Archmaester. That's a term that he somehow coined that was supposed to mean like, what I get from it is it's supposed to mean an exploration of like a scientific explanation that also explains things that are divine. It's like it's like a method which doesn't really distinguish between those two things. But um, he did write about this, and I couldn't really grok what he meant by it. It's it's commonly quoted as his um, 
his interest in kind of resolving the world through like both scientific and spiritual means. Okay, so what were Dr. John Dee's prominent contributions to occultism during his heyday? During this time, approximately 1556 to 1580, Dee was also developing his occult interest, often simultaneous to his scientific research. Like many Renaissance magicians at the time, his approach to magic was standard procedure. We find this in most of the grimoires as well. You know, after bathing and dressing in clean clothes, you would enter a, st- a dedicated temple space, drop to your knees before a consecrated table, altar, maybe light some candles, get some incense going, and pray fervently to God. I actually think that the opening prayer is really beautiful, and I've included it here just so you can hear it. It's, teach me, O creator of all things, to have correct knowledge and understanding, for your wisdom is all that I desire. Speak your word in my ear and set your wisdom in my heart. Amen. I find it very beautiful. Actually, at this time as well, so despite John Dee's kind of interest in the occult, he was a terrible scryer. He was unable to really see things in the crystal. And so in the early, I think it's 1582, maybe, he put out um, a series of advertisements looking for scryers. And during that time, he worked with a couple of separate scryers, it sounds like, from toward the beginning, when he then met um, a man named Ad- Edward Talbot, who later told you that his actual name was Edward Kelly, which is where that comes from later. And then it was when they found each other and began working much more closely that this this, this intense kind of three-year magical um, derivation of a system was taking place. Outside of Dee's extensive collection to magical books and treatises on magic, of which he had many, including ones that he wrote, his primary contribution was the overwhelming large body of work spanning those three years of intense magical operation, which actually really includes seemingly three separate systems, the last of which is Enochium that most are familiar with, that is not the same as the Mather's Golden Dawn Enochium that a lot of people also know. Dean Kelly's magical workings took place in three distinct phases that yielded these three magical systems. The first system is the, is the Heptarchia Mystica, the second is the Loegeth, and the third is Enochian, although Dean Kelly didn't actually call it that, they just called it, it, it like an angelic system. Some people claim that you can do Enochian without the preparation of the first two systems, which I think is probably true, but it begs the question of why they were given to Dean Kelly if they're unnecessary. Now, this can lead to an entirely other (laughs) fascinating discussion on the preparation of the magician, which is a concept that is seen within the early rituals of the Golden Dawn and even the OTO, where the neophyte performs rituals to master the microcosm before then moving to the attunement processes seen in the mastering of rituals of the hexagram. And these externalized internal processes of self-transformation are what allowed them to then fully engage with the spiritual world on all levels. At least that's, that's the theory. Um, out of curiosity, what do you two think about the importance of like preparatory rituals? It doesn't have to be as crazy as the Golden Dawn, but even just things like meditations and stuff that kind of make you more open to the spiritual world. Do you think it's as necessary as people maybe suggest it is? Pretty much 100%, yeah. I I mean, I think especially if you are doing something which can um, significantly alter your mental state. So there are some things where, you know, you have to be up at certain times of day or you have to stay awake for a long time and you have to fast. All of those things are things that can alter your mental state and they can uh, affect how receptive you are to things around you. So I think unless you are doing the full purification, sorry, full preparations, you're not going to get the full benefit. I also think, obviously, come from a practice where purification is very important so it feels sort of blasphemous almost not really blasphemous but to imagine something without that step phil do you have an opinion you would just keep going <laughs> i mean yeah my opinion is i think i mean i think preparation is important i don't i mean i don't do ceremonial magic so i 
but I feel like in ceremonial magic, it's it's probably one of the most important steps, I would say, from what I know about ceremonial magic. But to me, it's still important for something that is more uh, in-depth, especially having the right mindset and, and cleanliness, I guess, spiritual cleanliness. Ceremonial magic really is mostly just spirit work. At, a, at its basic like form, that's what it is. And we often talk about kind of in the larger ceremonial sphere that your first year of ceremonial magic really should be like doing the rituals from the golden dawn, doing the middle pillar, doing the LDRP, doing the ritual of the hexagrams, because it helps align yourself with the kind of larger cosmic space. And by doing that, then it makes it much easier for you to engage with the spirits that you're calling and trying to work with. It's often why sometimes people who will jump into ceremonial magic and try to do like scrying or do a conjuration, um, there's a big thing about conjuring to appearance, which isn't necessary. I don't think cool if you can do it. I think it's one of the most impactful rituals you can do, but certainly not necessary. And it, it won't work. And they're like, oh, well, why? And it's like, well, have you trained yourself to be able to see them and be in the proper state to see them? And if not, then it's probably not going to work the way that the grimoires are saying it will. So that all seems to be really important, which is so interesting then as to why Jean Kelly were maybe given these rituals to begin with. The first series, the first period of this three-year process yielded a unique system of planetary magic, which is called the Heptarchia Mystica, which doesn't actually seem to have any relation to Enochian itself in terms of the whole system, instead providing for the preparation of tools, which included the ring, the holy table, the laman, the seven ensigns of creation, and the ever-popular sigillum de amenth, or the wax tablet, which is oftentimes used in the system. I kind of liken this to a Solomonic magic, which is where you have this kind of extended period of time where you're developing all these tools. And the process of developing the tools is equally a period for self-reflection and to transform the magician themselves into a person that will work best with the spirits. And so in many ways, it seems that this might be something very similar to that, which is where the angels were instructing Dean Kelly to make all of these tools in order to kind of have them undergo the start of a transformation process that would allow for a fuller interpretation of the systems to come. The second phase from 1582 to 1583 produced a really large body of work known as Liber, sorry, Liber Lobegeth. What's interesting about this particular period of time is that Dee had a very personal fixation on discovering the lost book of the Bible, which could include the Apocrypha, and in particular, actually, the book of Enoch, which was referenced elsewhere in the Bible. And because of this, the result is really rich in biblical prophetic imagery and rhetoric, although it doesn't really seem to have like a practical working purpose. 49 calls and angelic language were written in this tomb and derived from squares that were noted on the manuscript folios. Unfortunately, these calls have never actually been translated, and the most important derivation from this period in total was actually the angelic alphabet, which was then used in the Enochian system. This seems to have maybe been lost amongst translation between scholars. And to my knowledge, nobody's actually done a translation of any of this information. It's still kind of just is out there and nobody knows where the manuscript is. The final period in 1584 actually resulted in an, a full angelic system, which the angels told Dean Kelly was magic given by God to Enoch in the form of a book that Enoch then passed down to others. However, due to some faulty human circumstances, which included tension between both Dean and Kelly, for example, um, during the second period with the Loegeth, essentially what happened during that time is Edward was staring to the crystal and 
D would do all the conjurations and stuff. It's actually written that a yellow light would move from the crystal and essentially hit to the middle of uh, Kelly's forehead. There would be a kind of translation of information. And so those folios, those 49 by 49 squares, will be filled in from right to left. That would happen like for a long period of time. And then the light would dissipate and Kelly would come out from this trance and not remember a single thing. But it was it was hours of this happening every single day. And so it put a lot of strain on Kelly. And so there began to be some kind of tensions between the two as they continued the work. And then also interestingly, at this time, Kelly was practicing a form of demon magic behind Dee's back. And if you've ever engaged with the spirits, um, oftentimes if you come from a ritual with Chthonic entities and you go to do an angelic ritual, they'll say something along the lines of like, you aren't clean enough to be in our presence, like go purify yourself, whatever. It's not a not good form, I guess you could say, to approach the angels after working with demons. And so they were actually having their sessions interrupted by what they called evil spirits, whatever that means. And that was a result, theoretically, of Kelly's involvement in this other form of magic behind Dee's back. So Dee became very angry (laughs) with Kelly about this. And the angels actually also discussed this in their instructions saying, okay, because of everything that's going on, you have until August to complete your work. And so they actually met that deadline. It was April at the point they they were told that. But they did meet the deadline, and the names of the 38 years were provided, and these really intense magical workings finally ended. Unfortunately, despite spending three years developing the system and getting it from the angels, neither Dee or Kelly, after splitting ways, used the angelic system that they'd noted down. So practically speaking, the Anakian system, to my understanding, doesn't really have any practical like working experience noted down anywhere. That's not to say that there are more they haven't discovered that talk about it. I only know of two people personally who've actually worked in Opian and even they have moved on to other things for reasons that I obviously will disclose or personal reasons. But it seems to be a, a very unique and very complicated system that probably is quite powerful, but it's just hard, I think, to practically figure out how to best work it. But those are their their mass, most kind of important contributions to the occult community. And now that we've gotten kind of the occult background, I want to talk about what I like to call um, Elizabethan era tea. There was, oh my goodness gracious, you'll you'll understand why I was obsessed with the relationship between the two of the these two because there was some in pure insanity that was going on. So first of all, Edward Kelly, I believe, was around. 20 maybe even almost 30 years younger than John D and before John D had even met Edward Kelly he had started to um, attempt to you know make contact with angels but had found no success and then he met John D John D initially claimed to be Irish we now have reason to believe that he's actually from Worcester England not really anything is actually known about his personal private life, but he kind of ran into John D and John D believed that he sort of exhibited these amazing powers. What I think is so interesting about the relationship is only Edward Kelly, Edward Kelly claimed that only he was the one who could translate the mm-hmm. angel's language. So you can see where some people might... um I don't want to say even run wild, but there are definitely theories surrounding Edward Kelly's intentions. Because for a lot of his travels with D, he was kind of getting what he felt was almost a, a free ride. He did end up marrying a woman. I don't believe those two had any children, but what really ended their relationship 
was uh, they, John D, not John D, sorry, Edward Kelly told John D that the angels told him that they were supposed to engage in wife sharing. John D was obviously uncomfortable with this, but he was like, you know, the angels said it, so I guess it must be true. They, they engaged in the wife sharing. And immediately afterwards, John D was like, that's it, we're done. And nine months later, John D's wife gave birth to a little boy. John D claimed the boy as his own, but obviously the timing of that is uh is is quite sus. I found this interesting quote regarding John D's like how he sort of came in contact with Edward Kelly or why. D believed that the angels held knowledge that would aid the English in the discoveries of new and uncharted lands on earth. So I guess John D believed that the angels were pro-colonialism. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's definitely interesting. So part of that's actually, speaking of colonialism, that actually does kind of relate to why John D kind of went into the supernatural and the occult in the first place is because the England, a lot of people kind of think that, oh, the Puritans came to America and then suddenly England was here. No, that's not what happened. England had been considering sailing to North America for hundreds, hundreds of years. And Queen Elizabeth had actually been talking about, you know, sending explorers out there. However, it was something that really hadn't been accomplished by English sailors before. So it just didn't seem possible. And John Dee had actually been considering some sort of political career should they land in North America and create a colony, which that would be freaking wild if that had ended up coming true. But obviously that did not end up happening. So he was kind of jaded and turned to the more occult in that matter. Edward Kelly and John Dee, specifically, they were interested in alchemy. Specifically, John Dee was interested in the idea of the Philosopher's Stone. Edward Kelly reportedly said, I don't want to continue doing this, to which John Dee said, no, we're going to keep on doing this. There was a lot of tension between the two where John Dee was like, oh, hey, Edward, you're really good at like the scrying stuff. Let's do hours and hours of it, which Edward Kelly was like, this is not what I signed up for but yeah they're they're definitely interesting figures what's their their drama and weirdness continued until their death in which john d died in poverty whereas edward kelly died a very wealthy man so i think that's very fascinating (laughs) really i've actually heard somewhat of the opposite so to my understanding kelly actually approached John D. And at the time, he was an alchemist assistant who then approached D because, and then D was very impressed with the scrying ability. He was he was an alchemist assistant who was also had been a convicted forger. Um, so like, yes, that's right. Not exactly the most honest person to begin with. Correct. Of course, John D. didn't care because all he cared about was the scrying purposes. But after they separated ways, John D. Be- then was patron or received like some kind of patron of an emperor somewhere. I don't remember who it was to produce. Al- like alchemist uh, gold and willing to do so actually he was imprisoned and then i think he escaped eventually but so yeah they parted ways and then edward kelly was like i'm gonna make good for myself i kind of have this like conspiracy theory that he was so enamored i suppose with like the lifestyle that d lived because they were working together right and john right. d was like a court magician and quite literally every sense of the word and so having become kind of familiarized with this lifestyle, he intended to continue it. And then he earned the patronage of some emperor. And then when he failed to obviously produce like things from downhill. But yeah, right. I thought that was also a very interesting end to that story. Right, right. Well, so I guess I guess how I should frame it is when John D died, Edward Kelly was living a very wealthy life. John D 
did mm-hmm. or Edward Kelly did die in prison. <laughs> um, <laughs> he was in prison because he couldn't produce Alchemist Gold, obviously. Yeah. Um, he found. I think he broke his leg. Yeah. yeah, I actually find the story of John and Edward quite sad in some ways, because if you look at the trajectory of John's life, he kind of starts really strong academic career. He does face a lot of criticism for his um, occult leanings. For example, um, in 1555, after he returned to England, he was imprisoned for calculating um, because mathematics was somewhat illegal. Um, but he, 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 was, he was actually imprisoned because he cast the natal charts of Queen Mary I and Princess Elizabeth. So um, that his, he was kind of under suspicion for being a conjurer. After this, he did escape from prison and go on to be part of the royal court, but he never financially reco- recovered from this. So he was essentially in the royal court, constantly working for navigation companies, trying desperately to earn a patronage from Queen Elizabeth, who he never actually did. He managed to give her private lessons, for example, presented her with many texts, but he never got the patronage he wanted. Because of this, he was never financially able to support the sort of full devotion to his occult work that he wanted to. And so when he meets Edward Kelly in the kind of 1580s, he starts to sort of go downhill a bit because he's falling into these almost trap of, of getting more and more and more into this world and Kelly's coming up up tops and sharing wives and ends up getting that patronage. Dee, on the other hand, dies destitute because he spent his whole life trying to financially recover from being a conjurer. So actually, I find it pretty sad and a bit suspicious that Edward uh, came out so well from the whole affair. Yeah, also like all of John Dee's family died from various plagues. A lot of them bubonic, but also just kind of... Like if you read John Dee's diaries, um, I've read like a couple like entries on his like family dying they're real they're really sad they are. They lo- he lost like everybody everybody i don't think anybody survived maybe one of his no sons. one daughter the daughter there was a daughter who cared for him until his death but oh, she was right. the only one who lived that's right and he had like how many children did he have oh uh one two three four five six seven eight children and only one of them survived and one of them was not even actually his likely yeah no i find i find it fascinating that and like that's why that's part of the reason why I don't really well I find the occult writings of John Dee and Edward Kelly fascinating. I'm genuinely not sure that I trust Edward Kelly enough to like truly I don't know. It's it's a very cuz like I became obsessed with them before I was like really into the occult. Uh, I don't know. Like what do you guys think is like the the spiritual merit of them like cuz I, I again, I'm not sure if I believe that Edward Kelly was anything more than kind of a bit of a bit of a hooligan. Um, I'm not sure. Maybe he, maybe he actually was into. Like maybe he did believe what he wrote. I'm not. I'm not sure. Like what? What does that mean? I guess in terms of its placement in occult history, because John Dee certainly. I, I, my personal opinion is that John Dee believed what he wrote. Some people call John Dee a scammer. I don't think if there's anyone who was a scammer in that relationship it was edward kelly so interestingly actually i know like john d was legitimate like in many ways because i remember when he first joined elizabeth's court he predicted an attack by the spanish armada like years before it happened and in 1588 actually that was one of the reasons why he was called back to england was to assist in advising this particular issue that had come up he advised the queen to i think was not send out ships essentially do the opposite of what everybody else was telling him to do and it because a large storm was going to come and destroy the opposing forces and that is 
indeed what happened. There are some people who believe that John Dee is actually responsible for the Tempest itself. And then there are others who believe that he just predicted it correctly due to astrology. So like, I think John Dee was a very capable magician in, in many, many ways. I agree with you that I'm a little bit more concerned with Edward Kelly's involvement in this process, especially as somebody who had already been convicted as a forger. Like, and, and who also approached John Dee. I mean, the advertisements were out there, certainly, but like he approached John Dee. And I think that in and of itself is a little concerning, the dishonesty there. It's like, well, if you were dishonest about this, and then like the dishonesty of working with the demons behind his back when they're in the middle of this affair, like, I don't know, just both of those things combined make it somewhat difficult to know whether or not we can actually fully believe what Kelly related to Dee during those crying sessions. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with you. I mean, I don't know as much about the systems themselves, but my impression is that when Edward and John met, John was at a kind of more desperate period of his life, both financially and spiritually. He was kind of trying to find these deeper mysteries and not feeling able to um, kind of make those connections with the sort of resources that he had at the time. So I don't want to say... Edward took advantage of him, but definitely it was a very opportunistic relationship. And I definitely think that his history as a forger and things draws some some of those things he must said into question. Right. Another thing to point out at that point in time, John Dee, I believe, stated that he wanted to work with angels to, quote, merge the schism in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of religious drama in John Dee's life, as was just happening in that time. So I can, de- I mean, he got shit from both sides. So I can see how that desperation would lead interesting individuals. Well, and they think that, like, well, along with that, right? He's he's trying to get the angels. I think for multiple reasons. Like, if there were, I think, many, many reasons why he was so interested in this form of magic but the other thing is that like when he's actually doing this himself and he can't get the response that he wants because he's a poor squire i think there's a lot of people even now who do like ceremonial magic and they experience the same kind of like oh i don't why like i'm not seeing anything or i'm not feeling anything or experiencing anything like is it really happening and especially the renaissance period when it came to magic like working with the spirits there was often this you you should see something right like this appearance of, of spirits in the crystal or whatever was the sign of a successful working now i think there is enough evidence to suggest like if you call the spirit they will come and like period they'll help you with what you need but, like back then that was certainly not the case at the time and not like the popular thought and so his inability to scry and anything in the crystal was like a sign of failure to him which is why then he so desperately i think reached out for the assistance of a scryer what does that mean for enochian then if we i mean obviously if edward kelly was truthful i think you know you know that's not much to debate there but if indeed edward kelly was a liar and just kind of using this get a free meal ticket and a free nice little side piece what do you think that means for enochian or does it does it not really matter it certainly puts some suspicion on the kind of, I think, what's, what's unfortunate is that the schism between Dean and Kelly began to happen, like, a little bit after the second, probably after the Loewegeth had been completed and moving on to the actual system, like, was being noted. So I think, actually, that the Heptamark and the Loewegeth specifically are probably somewhat legitimate in the system itself because they occurred at a time when Dean Kelly's relationship was bet on the better side. The uh, the first part, certainly more than the second, because I think at the end of that, Kelly was getting quite annoyed with um, D. But like, it's the third part that I'm kind of just, which sucks, because it's like the primary system, right? That's like, I don't know, like, is it legit? Is it not? It's hard to say. Like with any magical system, I think you probably need to work it in order to actually say whether or not it seems to be working appropriately. And that would be the basis for that decision but 
it's kind of one of the reasons why I won't work it because I like don't know. And <laughs> there, there are other methods of working with angels that I think are better than Enochian and certainly much more simple. It's also funny because Enochian is like very much, it's like a, it's, it is the perfect display of Renaissance magic, at least within like the grimoire ceremonial kind of this purest form where you have the tools and you've got all these squares and you have like the sigillum, which is made up of hundreds of angel names derived from the squares. Like it's very classic Renaissance magic. So I think if you're a purist who really enjoys that kind of thing, like sure, go for it, have fun. Lon Milo Duquette's book, Anaki and Vision Magic, is actually a very practical guide to Anaki magic if you are curious and you want to do it. There's like probably some truth in the entire system. I would like to think that the angels would create an environment where like deception would not be appropriate. But even if they might have not been deceptive, we have no guarantee that Kelly wasn't, right? Right. I also almost feel like, because Kelly was quoted as saying something along the lines of John Dee's pushing me to the brink of insanity. So I almost wonder, I mean, like if you're if John D is earnestly doing um, like calling in these entities, doing the proper subjugation ritual preparation, even if Kelly is not necessarily believing in something, I feel like that has to count for something. I don't know that then that brings the question, how much does how much does belief matter? Because we, we had this debate a little not debate. We had this discussion a little bit ago in the discord server about does belief necessarily matter? I think in certain cases, no. Like, I think if you're following, it's one reason why, like, I don't do, I don't like it when people joke around about, like, summoning demons and angels, because I'm like, even if you don't believe, that doesn't mean that things won't happen. So, I don't know. What are your thoughts? What are your, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I think I agree with you about the belief thing. I think there is Within that system, it, may, it makes sense as well, because he was a very, very, well, John Dee was a very, very pious Christian. So I think there has to be some level of belief on on his level, because it would kind of be antithetical to his his existing worldview to suddenly stop believing in this. Even though he, he was a court magician and he would go around courts kind of giving shows to people, and he was actually renowned for his stage tricks that he would do during plays. So there's an extent of he is doing something to, to fool people and maybe that maybe there is a level of deception that he believes has to be involved in the process but that doesn't necessarily mean that um his belief wasn't firm i think the belief aspect was it was certainly really important to john d and i think actually most monastic magicians at the time like you have many grimoires that like the opening part of the paragraphs talk about like be pious and believe in the Lord and like don't put any gods above him and like the whole Christian mantra kind of thing. Um, it's really more Catholic in nature, but I think that was certainly a part of it. What's interesting though about D system is that it's it's asking God to to part with certain information and provide it to D through the angels about the world and the hierarchy and like how everything works, right? And I think nowadays we know that like, yes, certainly I think the belief, especially within like the grimoires, which are again, a very Catholic kind of Christian set of working books, um, the belief in God is really important. And I I personally don't think you will get as good result working with them if you don't believe in God. But that being said, I don't know, it's, it's hard because like no one has ever been provided the same level of information that John and Dee were granted. That's three years of really intense magical working. So like, whatever but like we haven't ever had anybody come forth after that period and being like yes i received something very similar to this or like to the same kind of extent and like level of intensity which suggests that maybe in the pleading with god and like the piousness that john d 
sort of. I also he was a womanizer, so like, <laughs> um, <laughs> but he presented, and maybe God was like, okay, yes, I see, I see what you're asking for. Like, here is the system of knowledge as passed down to Enoch, and blah blah blah. But like at the same time, nowadays, like most of us just go directly to the angels. We kind of like skip the whole like. God show us things. It's more of like a respectful thing. Like we understand what we're being showed is because of what you are willing to provide, like whatever. And then the angels do most of the talking. I don't, yeah, I don't know. Um, I think their old belief maybe played a part, sure, but ugh. it's just, it's hard. It's hard to know. It really is hard to know. Because it's also such a very unique system. Like we don't find anything similar to Enochian literally anywhere. The only exception to that are like the squares that they have in Enochian, which you sometimes find with like the planetary commands and stuff. Very similar in that regard, except these ones are made up of letters instead of numbers. But like that's really the only similarity I can see across like multiple magical disciplines. And so the uniqueness of the system suggests that it is maybe something literally passed down from God, but like at the same time, it is so unique that there's, like, no other thing to compare it against to test for, like, validity. Okay, I do want to talk about one thing, which is the accusation of spying. <laughs> so what have you all heard regarding John Dee's life as a spy in Elizabeth's court? Um, okay, so that the evidence is shaky, and I would love to hear whether you actually believe he was a spy or not. So part of the accusations come from the fact that he was in service to Mary, Queen of Scots, and shortly after that, he was in service to Elizabeth I. Why does this matter? Well, like Phil mentioned earlier, there was a lot of religious tension in Elizabethan England, predominantly because Mary was Catholic and Queen Elizabeth actually was Protestant and brought major, major reforms to um, Christianity in Britain and actually led to the um, formation of Anglicanism. So how did John Dee escape from one religious regime to another? There are some people who think that he was actually a spy in the Catholic court and he later became very, very close to Elizabeth. Was it that, or was he just a political opportunist? The other thing, which is substantially more stupid, but I really had to bring it up. Um, obviously, John Dee wrote a lot, generated a lot of glyphs and astro um, astrological, astronomical charts. And some of these contain kind of cryptographic things. Robert Hooke, a scientist from the 18th century, I think, said that he signed off his glyphs with 007, making John Dee the original James Bond. <laughs> um, I would love to hear your thoughts on whether he really was a, um, a spy or not. I don't, I don't think so. I mean, so there was obviously, like, I don't know, there, you do see cases with people who tend to roam around on an individual basis, like a magus or a court bard, for example, where they float around from court to court. I was going to bring up John Dowland as an example, and then I remembered we actually do have evidence of him spying. So mm -hmm. maybe, maybe that was not a good example to bring up. Bards and maguses were used as spies, but like they weren't like high level. It was more of just like psst, like if you hear anything, let me know. So I don't, I don't think so. It's hard. It's hard to say. I definitely think he was probably more of a as an opportunist. Hand said. I think a lot of court magicians were though. Like they, <clears throat> I mean, their their status was entirely dependent upon their ability to produce results. And I think what's funny is like when court magicians tried to do this with magic, it oftentimes sort of failed because like magic isn't spectacular. It's often more subtle in nature. But like astrology is really where it is shown regarding like the astrological ability to predict certain things that might happen and the outcomes based on certain things, actions that were taken. And so in many ways, I don't know that it was, maybe it was, but I don't know. But I don't necessarily think it was. I think it was maybe just he bounced between 
countries and stuff based on where his expertise was most needed or would be most well compensated at the time. Although he also liked to travel. So it could also be that where he traveled was just where he stayed for a period of time as he was um, collecting manuscripts and reading books and so on and so forth. Is it incredible? Regulus to think that maybe he was a spy? No. I think the 007 theory is probably garbage. <laughs> but there is there is some, well, I've seen suggested elsewhere that like he used to sign off his letters to Queen Elizabeth with like a hand covering two eyes as like a symbol of potentially being a spy. I don't know what credence there is to that at all. So like don't quote me on it. <laughs> but I have heard that as like a suggestion as to maybe that's why he like how we know he was a spy. Is it a possibility? Sure. Do I think it's a likelihood? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> but regardless of whether or not Dee was a spy, there is no denying how influential he was in Elizabeth and England. Again, he worked as a court astrologer during this time and tried to get favor with some of his publications. And he also gives Elizabeth personal understandings and math to help her understand it, which was, again, his special. During the war, he was a personal advisor to Elizabeth I. And then despite his apparent desperation to be knighted or become like a sir, he actually never officially got patronage from Queen Elizabeth, which is like low-key kind of shitty if he helped her during more time. But like, whatever, it's fine. Do any of you, actually, I'm curious now that I'm thinking of this, because we talked about whether or not you believe Enochian being like a legitimate form of occultism. Do you incorporate anything from the system or even just like his ideologies into your own magic? No. And <laughs> they would like, no. <laughs> no. I think he's like, I, I said, I love to read about him. I love to write about him. I think him and Edward Kelly are fascinating characters, but no. No, I don't. I mean, probably not just, just because I'm not really a ceremonial magician. I did really find what was interesting when I was researching this is that John Dee as a figure kind of fell out of, of the public consciousness for about 200 years after his death. And then kind of around circa 1900 or so, he suddenly became like a really big thing. And, um, you know, obviously the Golden Dawn adopted Enochian and kind of mythologized him a bit. And all these things started coming out about his, the drama of his life with Edward Kelly. And so I think there is a bit of a disconnect between how modern occultism sees John Dee versus his status at the actual time of his life. And so I think probably a lot of our, popular or a lot of my popular perceptions of ceremonial magic are influenced by John but maybe not necessarily him as he was but him as he has been reconstructed by <laughs> the Victorians as usual yeah, yeah. I do agree the historical narrative of John Dee in modern times is probably not the most accurate I do think he's praised as like father of an oak but like realistically I mean if you if you Go back to the story, like John Dee could not do it by himself. And so he required, like if anybody, Edward Kelly is really the one to be praised for being able to see the information and note it down. There's other reasons why that may not be the appropriate thing to do. But like that is, that's kind of something I think that people forget is that like Dee was not good enough by himself to actually do this alone, which is not uncommon actually at the time. So it was, it's usually, at least in the grimoire tradition, it's recommended you have more than one person, one person being the square, the other person being the magician. And also the age difference, I meant to mention this earlier, is also interesting because in a lot of the Renaissance texts, like specifically the Hagromantia and some other grimoires, there's always this recommendation that you use a young boy for scrying. And it's purely out of like this desire for innocence and like how they haven't been polluted by like the world and whatever. But that's also an interesting facet that makes me wonder if it like played a bit of a role. You couldn't get a child, but he could get um, Kelly, who was essentially younger. In regards to using Enochian in my own practice, I don't actually use anything directly from the Enochian system. However, I do very frequently use something called drawing spirits into crystals, which is a method from a trap. Well, 
it's attributed to Trithenius. I think D was maybe someone inspired by that. So I guess you could say it maybe is something taken from Enochian that I incorporated into my own practice. But again, it's specifically attributed to Trithenius. But that that's really it. I love reading about it. I think Enochian is fascinating. I would love to pick the brains of people who have actually worked it and like really kind of see what their experiences were. I do know that Adley Nichols has spoken on the Glitch Bottle podcast about his experience with Enochian. And it was really interesting because he was actually using Enochian at the time to essentially like have things happen in his in his life so things like getting money and like very materially based things and he was told by the angels not to use a system for that if he wanted to do workings of that kind he needed to look into the head tamron which i thought was fascinating <laughs> and what's so interesting about that is because the tamron it deals with spirits that are much more like sublunar in nature. So very material, terrestrial spirits of that nature, chthonic in many ways. So there seems to be this distinction of like, if you want material things, then perhaps using something like the Tamron or the spirits within is better than using a system like John D's, which seems to be more liturgical in nature or like more kind of this high science, high occultism, whatever you want to call it, where it's much more intellectual in nature or trying to derive the meaning of like the word, the world, or kind of these like higher occult knowledges that people oftentimes actually aspire to, to achieve. But interesting side notes. <laughs> that's, that's my final thoughts. Does anybody else have final thoughts they want to give? I'm very curious other people's opinions on Edward Kelly and John Dee. Like Han said, I'm always kind of surprised how they're viewed in the modern day and age. Like, oh, they're such geniuses. I'm like, do you, are we reading about the same? Oh, mostly Edward Kelly. I'm like, are Sure, maybe a genius, but uh, maybe not a genius in in a way that you you want. <laughs> maybe, a, maybe a genius mastermind, maybe not. I'm definitely curious other people's thoughts or if they've worked Enochian. Does Enochian make you crazy? We have to ask. I have to ask. But I'm just saying, don't have to keep this in the podcast. Everybody I know who does it, a little bit, a little bit off. Just saying. <laughs> what do you think? I like I've, I've heard stories like I've heard stories of people practicing who have like Loki kind of lost their minds I don't like but here's here's the thing that I've I've heard especially from these people is like the people who have gone crazy are the ones who practice the golden dawn Anakian system which I think is is very far like Mathers took the Anakian system and he like removed all of the tools first of all which like created the, their own like golden dawn system it's far enough removed i think from the diaries of dean kelly that i don't know that you could actually call it like a full enochian system and very similar to how we say in like solomonic magic that if you don't follow the precise ritual and preparations like bad things can happen and they have happened to some people but i think it's the same way where like if you do the golden dawn enochian without like the preparations and the tools and everything like yeah it might go poorly and you might lose your mind a little bit <laughs> but if you follow the system as written by dean kelly i think you're probably fine okay that's it for this episode so thanks for listening to us talk about John Dee and Edward Kelly, a fascinating couple of magicians who did some crazy shit. Yep. Um, we'll see you next time. If you haven't uh, joined our Discord and you would like to talk to us about science or occult things, um, we always have a link for that in the episode description. And then also, if you aren't following us on Instagram, you should do so because we post hints for upcoming episodes and release fancy episode photos that are very pretty. <laughs> <laughs> to tell you when an episode comes out. But anyways, outside of that, thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye everyone. Bye.